One house mirror. What is your favorite game? My favorite game is Day of the Tentacle. So um, I was one of the lucky Malaysians to actually get a PC to play uh, when I was five years old. I think I got a small little Atari console. I cannot remember specifically what was the console model, but I also got a like a little PC. It's more like a floppy disk drive connected to the PC. Uh, it was an Atari, if I recall. And yeah, Atari twenty six hundred maybe something like that. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a twenty six hundred. Was it ST or something like that? But I can't remember <laughs> for the life of me. But anyway, the so um, because my father he he knows that um, IT will be a big thing in the future, and for the same reason he didn't buy me he didn't get me any uh, game consoles per se like uh, the NES or the SNES because uh, you know those are just for playing games. So he was hoping that you know to buy. By buying a computer, I would also learn to write documents, create posters, and all that. But obviously, I use the PC more for playing games. <laughs> and and uh, I I do recall you know some sweet memories of me playing uh, this game like called Ghostbusters. And my cousins and I we are very close knit. Um, we used to play. So Ghostbusters had two parts. One is the driving part. Where you have to drive to the scene, and the other part was to capture the the ghost itself. And I recall when we were driving, we would ju all jump to the bed, and jump up and down and shout "hantu hantu," which means ghost in Malay. <laughs> which is I don't think that's how you should play Ghostbusters, but <laughs> but yeah, I I do recall those kind of uh, you know memories of me playing those PC games in a very wrong way, <laughs> and. And that came the NES and SNES era, and also the Mega Drive. So this was the one where I tried my best to get my father to buy me some consoles from Toys R Us, but he will never get it for me because PCs are more important or useful. So I would actually go to my cousin's house to play all those games like uh, you know Mario, and I also played Sonic in their house, and I became a huge Sonic fan. <laughs> Like who's not a Sonic fan, no, right? No, naturally. 
<laughs> naturally. If, if, if Dave was still here, he, he might get your ear off on that, maybe. Oh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Sonic, yeah, he had the Sonic figure, right? <laughs> the back of the cabinet or something like that. But, um, yeah, and, you know, so I usually go to my cousin's house to play a lot of more console games while I'll be stuck at home. Uh, you know, if I couldn't go out, then I would play my PC games. And the CPU, the CPU that I had, uh, it was a bit evil. It had a lock mechanism, <laughs> so my uh, physical lock mechanism. So my father only unlocked it during the weekends. So I do fondly remember myself waiting for the weekend to play X-wing, <laughs> a lot during the nineties. Yeah. And yeah, X-Wing was the bomb. So recently Star Wars Quadrants came out, right? So I was, yeah, yeah I, I, while playing, I was giggling like a fangirl <laughs> the whole time. It's, it's really an amazing game. Um, and yeah, so I just go to my cousin's house to play console games. I go to, I play PC games in my house. And that's where I discovered um, a lot of point and click adventures, right? Um, so apart from flight simulations, also I was really deep into um, point and click adventures because you know I, I love cartoons hmm. basically and you know to be able to play a cartoon was interesting and also I love mathematics so I love logical puzzles right so started off with um, like Monkey Island then went to Full Throttle and then the other tentacle really really amazing games um, and then the dig also played uh, a lot of Return to Zork as well, a uh, return to Zork. Yeah, return to Zork. Yeah, that was quite a crazy game. <laughs> and yeah, since then, I think uh, when I reached sixteen years old, so I got the, so I played the other tentacle when I was fifteen, I think. And it was only when I was sixteen years old that I, this is a bit silly of me, but I only realized that humans made games <laughs> when I was sixteen. <laughs> so I was like, you know. Uh, because we don't have any uh, game design education or uh, game development education in Malaysia at the time. So games were like magic to me, you know, it, it just appears and I just played and that's about it, you know. It was only when I was 16 years old when I started to develop some critical thinking and trying to, you know, uh, criticize games for being too difficult you know, banging the controller. Uh, I remember Maui Mallard. It was for Mega Drive. It was the Donald Duck being a tourist and being a ninja at the same time. That was quite a classic game. And I was, I remember screaming at that game with Battletoads as well. <laughs> you know? And that was the time when I realized, oh, there are people actually making these games. So I started to um, dig deeper into the mindset of the game developer when they make this game. So for example, if the level is very difficult, or if the, if the logical puzzle is as such that I would question myself, why did the developer make it in such a way uh, to make it like this, you know, for example. So um, that's when I thought to myself, maybe I should be a game designer. <laughs> so what other PC games were you sort of into at that time besides, you know, Ghostbusters and point and click stuff? Wow. Uh, yeah, let's say X-Wing. Um, Oh, it's a lot. I mean, Prince of Persia being the other one. <laughs> um, oh my God. There was a game called Private Tier. It was something like a mining space colony uh, adventure game. Oh, I, seriously, I can't remember. Oh yeah, I do, so I do play a lot of uh, Dungeons and Dragons as well. Okay. Like where you control the, the, the dragons. Uh, what else? My God, there's so many PC games. Uh, yeah, but if you talk about Mega Drive as well, I do remember Maui Mallard. 
Battletoads, Sonic, um, Toe Jam and Earl. Naturally. And, uh, yeah, naturally. Yeah, wow. If you ask me to recall all these difficulties, <laughs> that's, that's really, really a lot of whole list of them. Uh, oh, yeah, I also played uh, one of my favorite games was also um, Another World. Uh, as yes, well. uh, that was yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, I'm... was it on the Mega Drive or was it on the PC? I think it was on the Mega it was on, Drive. It was on the PC anyway. Oh, it was PC only. Okay, okay. So I played it on the I PC. I don't know. Then. I don't know <laughs> if it was necessarily PC only, but I know it was on the PC anyway. I know it got like a re-release like a year or two ago anyway. Yeah, the the remastered version, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yes. Um, but I think I think I played the the Mega Drive version. Because I remember my cousins playing it on the Mega Drive, so I think it was a Mega Drive. Oh, sorry, Mega Drive in the Western world is called Genesis, isn't it? Yeah, yes, yes. Okay, Sega Genesis. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Like we're in the Mega Drive speaking world, so you're free to call Mega Drive if you want. <laughs> okay, okay, cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> the culture differences. <laughs> <laughs> if that if that's not more evident, uh, if you need more evidence of that, you just need to look at how different the uh, SNES looks in Europe and elsewhere compared to North America. Oh yes, I mean, even some of the point and click games that I play, right? Uh, we, we, we can get into that later, but you know, a lot of American culture and know how of American culture or Western culture to know how to solve the puzzles as well. So as a Malaysian, it was quite <laughs> it was it could be quite challenging sometimes to understand how mm. to solve things. Oh, and I do have something. I do have something to admit, and I think it's the first time I'm admitting it openly, in public. And it was that for the first few PC games that I played, it was the pirated version of the game. <laughs> and the reason why that is is because it was super, super difficult to get original games in Malaysia at the time. These pirated games were sold in malls, in official game shops. You know, it was absurd, to be honest. Yeah, I, I can't and, frankly believe they're being sold in game shops. I frankly yeah, can't. The, open openly. Yeah, the the police do not catch them. Yeah, for sure. And people are just buying it openly. And if even if you wanted to buy an original game, it, it was so difficult. So the favorite game I'm going to talk about today, which is Dead of the Tentacle. Admittedly, the first version that I played, it was the floppy disk version. It was the pirated version of the game. And I felt so bad that I bought the original CD-ROM after that. <laughs> you say it was difficult to get uh, you know, proper original games in Malaysia at the time. Was, was it because they were um, hard to come in or was it because they were expensive? Both. So because oh. they were expensive, you know, the shop owners know that no one would buy them. Okay. Right? So just imagine this. Um, so the price of an original game uh, obviously, in US dollars or pounds, it'll be around, I guess, 40 or 50. Yeah. Right, around that price range. Um, in Malaysia, they will just convert the currency. So it's usually three times or two, four times more expensive. So it's like as if you're taking out, uh, uh, let's say in UK terms, it's like you're taking out around 150 pounds to 200 pounds for a game based on your salary. You know, so without any, without the, you know, just talking about numbers here. Mm. So can you imagine taking like one twentieth of your salary for a game? <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, that was, you know, for the shop owners and also for the customers, it was really, really tough to buy um, an original game when a pirated game costs only five to ten ringgit, which is around two pounds to five pounds, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, and all the, and they took a lot of effort actually. They actually um, photocopied the manual, 
and bundled it with the floppy disk. So you know, back in the old days, in during the uh, you know in the nineties, the PC they used to have this anti-piracy, uh, you know, like wheel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to spin the wheel according to the symbol on the game, and then you have to mention what is the color or the number or whatever, right? So they even photocopied that thing. <laughs> it's really crazy. <laughs> I mean, you, I, can, you can't help but admire the commitment, the effort, at least. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Oh my god. So of course, at the time I was young, so I didn't. And at the time as well, I. I wasn't aware of the concept of you know that game developers exist, mm. right? I only realized it when I was 16. So it was when I reached 16 when I felt guilty about all this, you know, looking past the economy, looking past the demand and all this. I'm like, why am I buying uh, games for such a cheap price? And the money doesn't even flow to the developers. So and that's why I actually bought original games starting from that onwards. So. Um, and they're identical. I got the CD-ROM version as well, which is original, <laughs> but super expensive though. <laughs> Tim Schafer will be rocking up at your door once this episode. Oh I'm sorry, no! I'm looking for uh... money with interest. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm willing to give. Uh, <laughs> 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 I, I bought the remastered version. I bought the CD-ROM. So if you want me to pay for the floppy disk version, go, sure, <laughs> sure thing, Tim. <laughs> if, if, if not Tim Schafer, definitely Disney will anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! I shouldn't have done this confession <laughs> <laughs> in public. But yeah, to be honest, that was how Malaysia was.、Um, but now we have Steam and all this, so the price is now regionally based,、mm. uh, is regionally、uh, adjusted. So you don't have to take out one twentieth of your money to <laughs> of your salary to buy a game now. So when I realized that people make games, I thought I want to be part of this, and. The problem was at the time during the nineties there were there was no、um, official education for game development in Malaysia,、hmm. so I thought that in order for me to get into game development, the next best thing would be to learn how to create software, and so I went into a college that taught programming. So I had a degree, a bachelor of honors、uh, in science、uh, in computing, right. And they had this very weird three plus zero training program or something like that. So I didn't have to go to the UK to get my Staffordshire University <laughs> Bachelor of, of Science. <laughs> so that was really really weird setup. So after that, then I went to advertising.、Um, and even during college, although there were no game projects per se, but I forced games into the projects. Like for example, one of the pro- one of the college projects was、uh, to create a To create a software that teaches language, right, a foreign language, and a lot of my other classmates, they actually created like a very visual basic、uh, gray color window with buttons and all that.、Uh, but I created an entire Macromedia Director game where you control a ninja and you have to choose the correct shuriken to hit the enemy with a Japanese character on it. <laughs> so and even for advertising as well, when I went to the advertising, I also kind of forced game solutions、uh, to the clients as well. <laughs> and we eventually got、uh, a gig with Discovery Channel.、Uh, Discovery Channel actually they were making a documentary on the history of games called I Video Game, and we were the official、uh, creators of their flash game on their website. So that was quite an honor. Um, then, when I was 27 years old, I left 
uh, the advertising agency to just make my own games because now I know how to make games. So why not ju I just try to get into it? And there was this contest called Jay's Games. It was a, like a, a flash, like casual game competition. So I thought I brought in my cousins who I'm very close knit with and also my friend. And we created two games. One is a very casual um, strategy game because it's casual games competition, right? So my, I, I was thinking it would be interesting to take very, very difficult genres, like hardcore genres, and turn them to, into casual games. Because at the time, I was really, really into arcade games. So I went to the arcades a lot, played uh, Street Fighter, Daytona, Virtual Cop, House of the Dead, and all this. Um, so it was very weird because at the time, it was 2007, and the casual boom kicked in. And I it was puzzling to me at the time because casual games have always been in the arcades, right? Mm -hmm. Where you just pick up a gun and you know how to shoot. Uh, there's a steering wheel, so you know how to drive. Mm. So I thought of uh, taking all these hardcore genres and turning it into ca casual games. Uh, the first game that we created was a casual game based on uh, st the strategy game genre. <clears throat> and I thought the most uh, casual strategy game would be pool or snooker, <clears throat> right? And we represented every ball with a different military unit. So a smaller ball is a soldier. The bigger ball would be a tank. Or something like that. So that was the ball. So there was a bit, a bit of ball physics in Flash, and the second game that we created was a casual shmup, <laughs> because at the time I was really really into the Toho series, a Japanese independent uh, shmup game, right? And I thought to myself, why not we make this casual as well? <laughs> Which is a bit weird because it's usually a hardcore genre. Um, so usually in a shmup, if you die, it's usually the game designer's fault because the game designer just pushes a lot of bullets to you and <laughs> you have to avoid them. But in the casual game that we created called The Last Canopy, what happened was um, the player would can choose either to absorb the enemy attack or to shoot. So when you're absorbing, you can't shoot. When you're shooting, you can't absorb. So if you absorb too much, uh, then you will not be shooting enough and then there'll be more enemies coming to the screen. Uh, if you shoot too much, then you will not have enough firepower at the end, near, uh, you know, near the end of the level. So if you die, it is your fault. <laughs> so that, that's how I changed a hardcore genre into a casual genre. And we were very blessed because a lot of the casual community liked the game. And for the first snooker-like um, flash game, we won third place in the global competition. And for the last canopy, we won first place. And that was in 2008. And I thought to myself, as an independent developer, if I were to continue doing this, I might not grow enough because I'll just be making games that I want to make and not necessarily, not necessarily learning from other people. Hence, I thought of choosing between two uh, big industries. One is the Western industry and the other one is the Japanese industry. Mm. And I bought a lot of game design books at the time. They were very expensive, <laughs> but I bought them anyway. <laughs> And there were a lot of books based on the Western, uh, Western game design philosophies, right? Uh, so I was thinking like, wow, how did the Japanese actually make all these amazing games like Final Fantasy, Xenogears, and Katamari Damashi, and all this? Because, you know, Katamari Damashi, how the heck do you even create something like that? Takahashi, <laughs> there's no explanation needed. It's just Takahashi. 
<laughs> I'll have what you're having. So I was thinking like maybe Japan is like a black box, right? You have to get into the country, then only you know how, to, how things work there. So I decided to go for Japan. Um, in 2008, at the time, I, had, I knew very little Japanese. Uh, I only know some phrases from anime. Right. I mean, like, who doesn't and, know Japanese from anime anyway? It's basically the the main option to learn Japanese besides Durango anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bakayaro, you know, yeah, it's, it's all those, you know, where the main character will just shout. <laughs> those are the phrases that I remember, but they are rarely useful in real life. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I thought to myself, okay, I'll just jump to Japan. And okay, let's try uh, learning the language first, because I think to be a game designer, I need to present to people, right? I need to present to people ideas, and I need to convince them to work on the ideas. So I went through a Japanese language uh, learning course for around uh, one and a half years, and that was quite an interesting experience because uh, it was actually a school to get you ready for a university, right? So if you want to enroll into a Japanese university, you have to go through this one and a half years first and then pass certain tests then or exams, then only you can get enrolled in those universities. So I was actually learning mathematics and history in Japanese as well. <laughs> so it was super hardcore. Um, and I already had a goal when I entered the, um, uh, when I entered Japan, uh, because I wanted to go and get into the game industry, right? So I wrote a, a 10-page proposal in Japanese, uh, sorry, in English first. So I wrote a 10-page proposal in English. And then I decided to, whenever I learn new words, I would translate the 10-page document slowly into Japanese. And after the one and a half year course, I completed the translation of the English proposal and I sent it to various companies. And after that, I got into Square Enix. And then from Square Enix, you obviously then were on lead designer Final Fantasy Fifteen, and yep. and it was it was just Final Fantasy Fifteen, right? Uh, actually, for lead game designer, yes. Oh, and also Monster of the Deep, Final Fantasy Fifteen, which is a weird uh, VR fishing game. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I remember that. VR. Yeah. Um, but I was also game designer for Final Fantasy Type Zero. Oh, that's right. How can I forget yeah, Type yeah. Zero? I'm such yeah, a yes. Oh. oh come on, no, no. And the and by the way, that game wasn't localized, I think. So only when it became HD, it was localized, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, So I actually worked on the Japanese version, of the, the PSP version of the game. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But actually, my first project was Versus 13. That's hmm. right. Well, well. <laughs> Here we go, the controversy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the more controversy I think of is, do I still consider Versus 13 to be 15? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> I don't even know system. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. The numbering system is not as confusing as Kingdom Hearts. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was it was quite a crazy experience because upon uh, during the first two weeks of my work there, I already had to talk to Nomura-san. So it was mm. really nerve wracking. <laughs> it was a very f- nervous six months, I would say. <laughs> Damn, like, I'm like, what, what, what was it like sort of working around with, you know, people like Tetsuya Nomura and, you know, Hajim Tabata? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, 
the I mean the 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 directors in I mean I also worked with um, Toria Masang of FF13 as well because I was uh, working uh, uh, very shortly uh, for the pre-production of Lightning Returns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they are very different people, which is amazing, <laughs> you know. And I also I have spoken with Yoshi P before, with Yoshida Sang uh, of FF14. Yeah, they are all very very different directors. And not only that, in my team there were there was also the art director of Final Fantasy X, which was Naura San, um, art director of Final Fantasy XIII, which was um, Kamiko Kusang. You know, so yeah, it's like it's. You know, I, I worked there for eight years, but you know, in all the eight years, it, it felt so surreal. It's like I was in a dream. I, I'm like sitting beside all these legends, and I seriously don't know what I was doing there. <laughs> it's like, why am I here? <laughs> it, it was sort of like walking into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory and having yeah, exactly. all these sort of creators and alters working yeah, with yeah. you alongside you and stuff like that. Yeah, the the people who made the magic, right? The magic yeah. happened. Yeah. And I'm beside them, like wow, it's, yeah. So it was a very, very surreal experience. Mm. Oh no, I can only imagine. Um, <laughs> when when you made the decision then to leave Square Enix and set up Metronomic with your cousin, then I'm like, what was that like, sort of making that? I, I asked you this before um, at Res last year, but like that transition from AAA to indie, it's it's a very big leap, let's say. Mm-mm-mm. It's um, it's. It was especially, that especially from a company as well as big as Square Enix. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it was something that I was thinking of the whole entire time, actually. Um, uh, so just to explain the context a bit, my cousin Daim, who's now my co-founder now, he's he's this very very amazing uh, artist and creator. Uh, he was concept artist for Street Fighter Five, and also uh, what was it? Uh, illustrator for Street Fighter 4 and animator for Final Fantasy 14. So the two of us, uh, because he was in Japan as well. Mm. So we meet every two Saturdays or so uh, in this place called Ikebukuro. And we always discuss, you know, about games that we want to make. And um, and also uh, through Square Enix, I actually had the opportunity to do even PR work, which is very rare for a foreigner to do in Square Enix, <laughs> to be the face of Square Enix, right? And I get to travel to the US, to the UK, and also, you know, to Malaysia as well. And it was at a time when I realized that Malaysia's uh, talents were getting better and better. When I left Malaysia at the time, it kind of, it felt like, game industry felt like a really far away thing for Malaysians at the time. But when I returned to Malaysia just for PR purposes uh, in 2014 and 15, I realized that a lot of game companies were sprucing up and there were a lot of talents, you know. And Daim... Because uh, he, he was, he's a bit like a, sort of like a freelancer as well, right? So he was like, come on, Hasmir, quit Square Enix and just, come on, let's make our own games, man. <laughs> come on, come on. Taking you like, on. Come. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, wait, wait, let me just finish FF15 first, okay? <laughs> and then after FF15 finished and Tabata-san came to me and said, okay, let's make a VR fishing game. And I'm like, wow, that sounds interesting. <laughs> okay, let's do that. <laughs> and then Daim's like, what? VR fishing game? Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, and then I told Tabata-san when I went to Malaysia at the time, I was already told him that, you know, I think I want to go back to my home country and nurture the game industry there. Mm. And yeah, so it wasn't that hard of a decision to make. But although it, you know, I think Square Enix is still, I, I still have it in my heart, you know, um, the people in Square Enix, the games and all that. Yeah, mm. still love working there, 
एक्चुअली Let's talk of your favorite game, Day of the Tentacle. Um, yeah. You mentioned how you uh, you were playing these sort of point-and-click games of the time uh, before yeah. Day of the Tentacle came out, so the likes of Monkey Island and stuff like that. There, yeah. um, like, was there any others you were uh, going for at the time? Like, not necessarily just LucasArts stuff, like in the Indiana Jones or Star Wars, but others at the time as well. One game that I fondly remembered was Toonstruck. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. I, I played Toonstruck, um, the one with Christopher Lloyd. Uh, you you control Christopher Lloyd in a in a in a cartoon world that he has created, hmm. and yeah, I really like Tinstruck as well because first of all, it is a bit of a um, how is it like a like a like a more like a resting point from all these LucasArts games, right? So you have all this line of LucasArts games, and suddenly you have this one very weird game <laughs> called Tinstruck, and also like I said, uh, Return to Zog as well, right? Hmm. So uh, yeah, so the non Lucasfilm games were also quite fun. Um, but yeah, I think I have very fond memories with Toonstruck um, for the very fact that first of all, I love Christopher Lloyd <laughs> and all the voice actors in there as well. And the the second thing is um, seriously the whole entire concept of understanding cartoon physics to solve a puzzle was re- it really struck a chord with me. Yeah. In terms of specifically Dave Tentacle, like. What was it that made it stand out to you to say, I want to play this game and I want to play it right now, basically? Oh my God, that's a very hard question to answer. <laughs> There's so many things I love about Dear the Tentacle. But okay, I, I think the first catch was um, that I actually love Back to the Future. Back to the Future is still, until today, my favorite movie. Right? And I used to like Back to the Future too. But now I like one and two equally. But anyway, so I love time traveling, and but at the same time, I do not like time traveling stories that are too. How would I? How would I do this? How would I say this? Like a global crisis, right? Mm. The reason why I love Back to the Future was it felt so personal. Um, even though there are some time paradoxes here and there, they might affect the world, and you know, there's a huge time machine and all that. But ultimately, it's about the story of Marty McFly and um, Doc Brown, mm. right? And they are the tentacle was exactly like that. So you have a time machine, and there's a lot of time traveling puzzles. But ultimately, it's just about these three uh, very weird misfits. <laughs> right? I, uh, you don't even know how they got together in the first place. But <laughs> it's like the the whole entire feeling of that mismatch between the character and the world, and how everything just gels together very nicely as puzzles. Like you know. Um, because the its core strength is the time traveling aspect of it, right? And mm. it played its strength very, very well. Oh man, there's so many things I have to say about the identical. Wow. I'm just I'm just gonna say up front, I've just had a massive epiphany realization of sorts that is completely unrelated to the topic we're talking uh, talking about, at least okay. in terms of data tentacle. I've mm-hmm. just realized that uh 
uh, Back to the Future is basically the 80s equivalent of today of Rick and Morty. And I cannot believe it's taken me God knows how long to realize that. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know I, why you know, I just realized that. <laughs> looks like I'm not the only slow learner here. <laughs> Oh gosh! Yeah, Rick and Morty rocks. <laughs> Sorry, go on, go on. Because if, okay, okay. if, I, if I just keep going, it's just going to stop my plans. Um, so there, I mean, for different adventure games, I always like them for different reasons, right? Uh, Monkey Island felt like a, it felt huge, I guess, especially for at the time, mm. for the time. Um, Full Throttle um, made it a bit more bite-sized. So you only go through several locations and then you just solve the puzzle there and then that's it. Then you're done with that location and you go to the next location. So it felt like a, like a progressing story, right? Huh. And that's what impressed me about Day of the Tentacle because Day of the Tentacle is like the best of both worlds. The world is actually very huge, but it's divided into bite-sized structure, uh, not in terms of its physical space, but in terms of the puzzles, right? I do recall that uh, Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman, when they were talking about the game, they kind of mentioned that all three characters were playable from the start. They, they were planning to do that. And they decided to unlock the characters slowly one by one. And I thought that was a really great idea. So it felt very manageable. you know. At the same time, the physical space, I, I thought it was very, very smart. It's the same physical space times three. Right? It is the same house, but 100 years in the past, or was it 500? I forgot. But yeah, and, and then 100 years in the future, and then after that, the present time, right? So I thought that was really, really genius to use the same landmark uh, and, and to make the game feel huge, but with the same space. It sort right. of it reduces sort of the workload the team had to do. Yeah. But also, yeah, you know, save, you know, actual technical capabilities of, this is going to sound so strange, but like save sort of <clears throat> the technical capabilities as well, like on, you know, mm. stuff like memory and storage and stuff like that there, especially for, you know, using things like floppy disks and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it's not only memory space uh, in terms of the technical aspect, it's also memory and storage for the user. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because you don't have to remember so many locations. Hmm. Uh, you just remember there's a house, there's a living room, there's a attic. So it's like, you know, there are very few locations that you need to remember. And I think that was the genius of it, right? And even though the locations are the same, but they're all similar. So that's where the time traveling part comes in. And that's where the genius comes in, right? Where you have to affect the space in a different way. Uh, you have to chop the cherry tree to to make the tree disappear in the future so that you can control Laverne in the future. You know, it, it's, just, it's just a very clever way of using the same space um, to solve puzzles. And it makes the game so much more fun and manageable. Um, I usually feel a lot of stress when I play um, point and click games sometimes, right? Hmm. It's uh, because you have to remember where things are. Um, there's a lot of traveling to do. And all that, but the other tentacle has reduced a lot of that stress. And the other reason why I feel that the other tentacle reduced that stress is was also because when you solve puzzles midway, there'll be some in-game cutscenes. Hmm. 
you know, and the inky cutscenes uh, not only explain the story, but it also explains the puzzles sometimes. And of course, it's also for funnies, right? It's for funny scenes. Like for example, I remember Hoagie uh, having to drag a bed, uh, a mattress, I think, uh, on the attic. And then you, you see two people below the floor actually commenting on that, right? I think we have a moose on, upstairs or something like that. And I thought, you know, that you do not, you, they didn't have to do that. But it added so much to the whole identity and flavor of Dear the Tentacle on top of it being so easy to understand when it comes to cause and effect, right? Like, for example, uh, sometimes you go into this random room and then they will cut into this particular character. And then the character will mention something about what that person wants or what that person does. Like, for example, you have, um, uh, you have a lady who's uh, knitting the American flag, right? So even if you have not entered that room before, oh, you know that she exists. And most of the time, it is because she is someone very important for the puzzle, hmm. right? And I thought all these cutscenes midway, it proves to me that um, the people who made the game took their sweet time to, you know, to, took, took their time with the game. To, to pour their love into the game, to, to make sure that everyone understands the cause and effect of every single element of the puzzle. Hmm. And I thought that's what made it leaps ahead compared to a lot of other uh, point-and-click adventure games. Like I gave it enough time to give it, you know, like you said, the love it deserves, the affection it deserves, and the attention that it deserves as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they also understand that the user might not be able to understand everything. Right now, game develop modern game developers. We take the shortcut. If the if the person doesn't understand it, we just throw a tutorial. Hmm. Right, but the folks at LucasArts at the time, um, they were very smart when it comes to um, progressively putting in hints, even though the trigger for it might not be un completely related to what you're doing at the current moment, but it just stored somewhere in your memory. So one day, oh, yeah, I just remembered that lady actually is making a flag. So you have to change the flag over there. You know, so it's like everything is just interrelated. And that's what time traveling is about. The, the UX of time traveling is to make everything interrelated, right? Everything just interrelates with each other. Whatever you affect will affect the future, you know. And it's just brilliant. Yeah, the whole design of the game is so brilliant. And oh, I can go on. I think we did a five-hour podcast. <laughs> Okay, okay, I'll keep it short. Um, the other thing that I really love about the game is, I think I love, um, I think the artist's name is um, Peter, is it Peter Chan, I think. I'm going to so Peter, so. Yeah, Peter Chan is, uh, is the artist. Um, and he, so he actually also was involved with, I'm, I think uh, he was involved with the previous games as well. So uh, was playing Monkey Island. Yeah, Peter Chan. And Peter Chan, right? Yeah, so Peter Chan, uh, so I was playing games like Indiana Jones uh, and also um, Monkey Island as well. And I love those games, but sometimes it's very, very hard to tell what is interactable. Um, and sometimes it's very hard to tell what, uh, what, is, uh, what is significant to the puzzle and what is not. And also because of the technology at the time. So everything looks very pixelated. So everything looks slightly low quality, right? Hmm. 
So I do recall Peter Chan saying something about, you know, trying to simplify the graphics for the other tentacle so that everything pops up better. And I totally agree with that. Um, it really popped up better. Um, it felt like you're really playing a Saturday morning cartoon. Mm. And even with the technology at the time, which is, is really pixelated, um, you can actually really tell what is significant to the puzzle and what is not significant, what pops up, what doesn't. And that reduces a lot of the stress of playing a point-and-click game. Because usually when I play point-and-click adventure games, I'm usually very careless. Uh, I skip certain objects, right? So when I'm very stuck, I will always go to every single room and go through every pixel one by one with my cursor, right? <laughs> so you just go one, then okay, from the top left to the top right, and then you go to the next row, then go to the left, and then you go to the next row again. So it's, you're, like, you're like scanning for objects that you can interact with. Uh, Dear the Tentacle actually reduced that uh, stress for me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that sort of art style of the game, that very cartoony mm-hmm. style of the game. If I, um, you know, like, the way we've been talking about, you know, um, Dave Tentacle for the past, you know, half hour, 40 minutes or so now, mm. um, and like, you know, you, you're you coming up talking of your love of games and stuff like that there and whatnot. There's a theme that's coming across here is that you love cartoony stuff, basically. Not just Dave the Tentacle, but also stuff like, um, you know, Saturday morning cartoons. <clears throat> and mm. I'll say it'd be remiss as well if I didn't mention, you know, you mentioned Battlehood as well, and like that just got a modern reboot, and that's very mm. Saturday morning cartoony reboot. If there's one mm-hmm. thing that's coming across here is that you have a very fa- massive fondness for basically cartoons. Not maybe not necessarily just in mm-hmm. games, but mm-hmm. like definitely that anyway, at least. I, I think I think what's more accurate is I have a f- I have more epiphany towards um, things that don't take themselves seriously. <laughs> If that makes any sense, so yeah, I, I mean, I I also love games like uh, Jet Set Radio and uh, Space Channel Five. Um, oh, yeah. those games, those games plus the other tentacle and Team Schafer games have affected my game design a lot, and also affected my cousin's way of uh, you know uh, doing art direction and all that. And that's how No Street Roads came about, our debut game, right? Um, yeah. So I think back in the old days, people they usually don't take themselves seriously and. And you know, that is the genius of the other tentacle as well. It is a huge crisis, time travel, but all the game wants you to do is to go to yesterday and switch off the pollution pipe, <laughs> to switch off the, the sewage, right? Because or else the tentacle will grow hands, the purple tentacle will grow hands and he will take over the world. It's like, that is the most ridiculous <laughs> plot for a time traveling story I've ever heard, but it's so awesome. <laughs> Um, and also, I think the team had a great sense of mismatch, of mismatching their setting with their characters and all that. Like, for example, you have a, a rock, heavy metal rock dude in talking with George Washington. And you, you know, it's like you should have the genius guy in the future. You know, typically you would do that, but they just uh, mismatch characters with the setting and all that on purpose. You know, and, and the three friends in Day of the Tentacle are also very mismatched as well, right? They're so colorful. So everything just, yeah, to me, it's all about not taking things seriously is what I really love about uh, Team Schafer's uh, and Dave Grossman's work. Hmm. Uh, 
so yeah, I mean, like touching upon that, then, um, like the writing, like like you say, it doesn't take itself very seriously. Yeah, it basically goes off on, yeah. for the lack of a better term, sort of the sort of crazy, sort of zany, not so serious story. Mm. Um, mm. um, like. Yeah, like talk to me about that. I mean, like we mentioned it in bits then there, but like, go, like go into detail about that, like how you find that. I think what makes Dear the Tentacle shine uh, compared to some other games that are totally ridiculous is that although the writing is ridiculous, or the, should I say the overarching plot mm. is ridiculous, but the stakes are real. Hoagie mm. is stuck in the past, Leverin is stuck in the future. And Bernard wants his friends back, right? And Doctor Fred also is kept of the purple tentacle, and all. So all the stakes are actually real. So you can actually feel the motivation of all these characters. And although the writing is ridiculous, but it feels very human, right? You know that the 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 there's some things at risk here, right? Mm-hmm. And you can and even if the you know even if the purple tentacle is going to take over the world in the future, but Laverne's motivation is to get out of there because she is viewed as a slave in the future, right? So one thing that I really like about the writing of the game is that the cause and effect, something that I think a lot of uh, game developers, even I'm guilty of this as well, uh, is to connect the dots when it comes to cause and effect. Um, The writing is done in such a great way uh, where you actually know what every character wants in the game right? Hmm. What needs to, and that also um, flows to what needs to be done in the game as well, because point click adventures are usually a bit like uh, MMORPG quests, right? <laughs> You're trying to fulfill some quests, but instead of getting money, you get uh, inventory instead of uh, money and experience points, right? And I think the writing was done so seamlessly through the character. So um, Usually, in some point and click games, you will only get to know the motivation of the person only when you talk to that person, mm-hmm. right? But in this particular case scenario, it's sometimes not that obvious, uh, and it's so seamless, and it just goes into the corner of your head, and then there are a lot of times in the day of the tentacle where it just clicks, and say, "Oh yeah, I just remembered that the girl wants the tree to disappear, so I need George Washington to cut the cherry tree." But darn, the cherry tree is not a cherry tree, so I have to. Paint it red, you know. So, um, the the genius of the game is that the the cause and effect is being planted into your head the whole time. But sometimes you don't know what is the effect or what why is it very important at first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you only know the significance of that uh, motivation later on when you try to solve the puzzles. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the writing I think to me is for both purposes for game design purposes and also for you know, just the the zeniness and the humor, um, it just gels well together. Um, so, in terms of like a package itself, it's not just a horrible game with a very zeny uh, story, hmm. but the zeniness actually leads to good game design and the other way around as well. So, yeah. How do you, as how a do game you, designer, I'm very I'm very impressed with the game. How um, How do you think um, sort of Lucas and Schaefer and everyone else involved with the team like so how how do you think they sort of managed to come up with a sort of loop that involved those things that you just mentioned that's those zany sort of story the cartoony aspect and what and you know 
the puzzle design that the game had, how do you think they managed to achieve such a loop that feels cohesive mm-hmm. and whole? Mm-hmm. So this this is just my interpretation because I, yeah, I don't yeah. know them personally, of course. But <laughs> um, I feel that they are they know uh, that they are humans, and people who are going to play the game are also human beings, right? So as as much as you want to be ridiculous and entertain people, you know they also understand the concept of um, stress and fun factor and also entertainment value and also um, uh, the understanding of reasoning right and all that so uh, you know there are a lot of different game designers in this world or creators um, so we have like kojima for example hmm. so kojima is just crazy oh no that that, that we can pretty much ascertain that <laughs> gear does not show that death strand definitely did in some form it wasn't yes. just tied to metal gear <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the common factor was uh, Kojima's craziness, right? <laughs> and, and by the way, I'll, I'll add to Kojima, Yoko Taro, especially near Automata. Oh, yes, Yoko Taro as well. Yes, definitely, definitely. But yeah, I feel like Tim Schafer has that weirdness, but with groundedness, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, the. I think I don't know whether it's Dave Grossman and Tim Schafer affected the team, but but I felt I feel that looking at Tim Schafer's uh, charisma and the way he conducts himself and also the way he talks to his team, I can feel that he has really influenced his team to be thinking outside of the box, but at the same time bring them back a bit, and mm-hmm. you know to tell them that hey, I'm feeling a bit of stress here. And I do recall there was one developer commentary where they mentioned that the opening of the game might be too long, right? So I think Tim Schafer wanted to put in an interactive sequence in between, right? So that is the that is Tim Schafer thinking on behalf of the user, right? So it's not just ridiculous for ridiculousness' sake, but for more for you know the entertainment value, and entertainment value comes in two. Uh, is divided into two, right? One is uh, just to be entertained, but the other one also is not to be stressed out because when you feel stressed out, then the entertainment value goes down as well. So yeah, I feel that the, even in terms of management, in terms of the Kickstarter project, uh, everything, Tim Schafer just feels uh, like he touches upon the... Oh my God, I'm sounding like some deep psychological <laughs> kind of uh, professor or something. But yeah, he touches upon human, the humanity aspect of his game design and his team management very well. Yep. Hmm. Um, mm. We've touched upon those two out of three elements that, uh, uh, that you mentioned there uh, in detail. The third one being the design of the game, the puzzle design especially. Um, like, mm. yeah, like go into that a, bit, a little bit, like how you find that. I'm still very surprised that you haven't played the game. <laughs> It's, uh, so, oh, for, so for context, before we started, um, me and Haz and Dave Scammell, who's um, the PR manager for Metronomic here in the UK, we were all sitting here and discussing the game and all that there, and I had to confess, I've not played Day of the Tentacle. So, yeah, sorry. Go on. God, no, I can't everyone should play the... No, 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 you should play Day of the Tentacle, man. Forget everything that you're doing right now, okay? Just <laughs> Uh, but the, yeah, the puzzle design, as I mentioned just now, it plays upon its um, core strength very well, which is time traveling, 
right? Um, one of the reasons why people love Back to the Future a lot was because I feel that every change that happens feels very local. And I think that is why some people didn't like Back to the Future 2. Because Back to the Future 2, you're changing an entire timeline, right? Hmm. Whereas, the, whereas uh, Back to the Future 1, it was just about his family. And um, But whatever it is, the, the, that feeling the, where you're looking at a newspaper and the headlines change depending on your contribution to all, uh, changing the timeline, uh, that particular feeling of reward is um, inserted into the puzzle design of the identical. Like uh, one of my favorite puzzles, I think this is a very, very typical favorite of a lot of people is that Laverne uh, needed a disguise in the future because the future in the future, Purple Tentacle has already ruled the world and all humans are slaves. And the thing is, uh, is that uh, she needs a disguise. And then coincidentally in the past, uh, there's also, what was her name again? Was it Betty Ross? The one who created the American flag, right? Hmm. And what you had to do was you have to, Laverne had to take a tentacle chart which was, because she acted like she was sick. So she went to the doctors and then there was a chart, you know, there was a human chart, uh, by the way, which, which was inaccurate. It was quite cool <laughs> because tentacles don't know how humans actually work. But, uh, and then there was a tentacle chart as well. So she had to take the tentacle chart, send it to the past, and then replace the American design, the American flag design with the tentacle chart. And then now the American flag became the tentacle itself in the future and that's where you can sorry a bit a bit of a spoiler there right especially for you johnny no it's fine <laughs> right. you're really who haven't spoilers it's worth saying that much it's been what uh 20 nearly 20 odd years no 30 odd years at this point i mean go full hammer for all of us for all i care at this point <laughs> but yeah i mean that level of you know changing the entire american flag just so that you can disguise yourself <laughs> in the future is to me, it screams um, uh, hilarity, it screams zeniness, and at the same time, it felt like something that would satisfy what Laverne wants at the current moment. Like, Laverne is a crazy lady. She doesn't even care whether the American flag changes or not. She just wants to disguise herself as a tentacle. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just little, little things that um, make the puzzle design so unique. And you can actually feel the... You can actually see the change happening um, in the game, uh, but unlike Back to the Future, which is a linear form of entertainment, right? So whatever Doc Brown and Marty McFly does, uh, it will change the newspaper headline. So yeah, you feel that it's uh, you know it's entertaining, it's delightful, but it'll, it stops there. But for there, the tentacle, it is you who is actually doing it, right? So to be able to see all these changes uh, based on your contribution to the game, and it's, it felt so rewarding, right? And yeah, a lot of the puzzle designs are based on that on top of very, very simple puzzles. Like, uh, so if you have everything based on time traveling, then there will not be what we call in Japanese, um, merihari. Merihari means to have things, to have the graph go up and down. Basically right? tipsy-turvy. Tipsy-turvy, yeah. So if you have everything based on time traveling, that will be boring. So there will, there will be some very simple puzzles like to make a person sleep, you have to pour decaf coffee instead of coffee. Uh, and all that. So we have all these very, very simple puzzles in between the huge time-traveling puzzles. Yeah, And 
that balance of the Mary Hari, I think works very well for uh, worked very well for nursery. Uh, sorry, for the other tentacle. Um, considering the sort of time travel aspect of the tentacle, is hmm. there any other games that you think have done sort of time travel as well? Uh, uh, alongside the tentacle, like for me, like uh, like certain speaking for me anyway. Like I think the there is, you mentioned the words cause and effect earlier, which mm, yep. immediately sprung to mind effect and cause, and in turn, Titanfall too. <laughs> it's not necessarily a time travel game. It's cool, it's cool, it's it uses cool. time travel as a mechanic. It's, <coughs> yep, yep, yep. Yes, yes. Uh, time travel. Wow, but I don't know which games did it as. As great as Dear the Tentacle, though. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah, it's really I yeah I I was I don't know I was thinking of Prince of Persia for a while there where you can actually reverse time, but that's not really a big deal, like uh, compared to Dear the Tentacles, you know, uh, mm. it's a plot device itself, right? So yeah, actually I mean, sorry I don't know any can, good games that you can interpret it any way you want, like as part of the mm. gameplay, not just part of the story. Right, right, right. But even so, yeah. Do you know any games apart from Titanfall 2 that uses time travel? Uh, yeah, it's a bit difficult, isn't it? Okay, I can say uh, uh, it is not, it's not related at all, but I mean, uh, using the concept of time mm. uh, to do a platforming game, I would say Jonathan Blow did it very well with uh, Braid. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, Braid, I think, is, is another game that I really, really love. Um, and, you know, Jonathan Blow is... Uh, I'll, I'll have what he's having as well. <laughs> because <laughs> because I, I've played The Witness as well. Oh, my God, that game is so deep. <laughs> and Braid is so deep as well. And Yeah, Braid also uh, plays around with the concept of time very, very well. Uh, but instead of the typical concept of, you know, you affecting the past and all this stuff, it's more like the concept of time being linear. Right, and to play with this linearity was uh, something that I really admired in Jonathan Blow's design. Oh yeah, yeah. I want to talk about one more thing. Sorry, you yeah, go, go, go. Okay, there's one more thing that's very that is very related to our current game, uh, No Straight Roads, because No Straight Roads, um, Daim and I, we insist, uh, my cousin and I, Daim, uh, my cousin Daim and I, sorry, insisted that um, that we have a lot of dynamic music in the game where it actually plays along with whatever uh, you're experiencing in the game, right? Like, for example, if the boss is winning, at the, if the enemy is winning at the current moment, then it'll be EDM. If you're winning, it'll be rock. Um, and a lot of people actually, I guess, how, how would I say this? Um, underestimated the power of uh, dynamic music in video games. Because the weird thing is in the 90s, especially for LucasArts, dynamic music was the thing that made their game shine hmm. as well, you know? Uh, for example, uh, X-Wing. Yeah. Right? The music was so dynamic, man. It's like you, if there's no enemy in space, then it'll be a very calm music. And it slowly um, merges into the Imperial March, uh, Imperial March, right? Uh, when the Star Destroyers start uh, hyperspacing into the space. Uh, so it's like... They had the tentacle, so did that very, very well. Um, if I recall, one of the composers was Peter McConnell, and uh, he and I think two other composers. So he, so they made it such a way that uh, there's a little, little loop in the music. So when you get out of the room, you can still feel a bit of the ambience of the previous room, but it slowly, it just loops once, and then it goes into the, uh, the loop of the current room. You know, so it, it's very, very comedic in a way. And at the same time, it was very, very charming, right? 
because every room actually had a very distinct uh, tune to them, especially when it comes to Hoji's, uh, you know, past level. Uh, there are a lot of historical kind of music like that, you know, like American national anthem or whatever. Hmm. So when it, it slowly fits out to the new room, that, that was actually a very, very immersive experience. So I really love the dynamic music in um, LucasArts and also, you know, Team Schaefer games as well. Hmm. Um, so, um, obviously, we're kind of talking today the technical vibe, talking about the sort of remaster. Have you played that at all? I've played remastered, yes. I played twice. <laughs> What did, you, what did you think of it? Do you think it had held up relatively well to the original? Definitely. I mean, to be honest with you, if, even if it was just the pixel version, <laughs> the pixel version of the game, I think it would still hold out very well. I guess maybe for young people, they want to see more high-res graphics. Hmm. And also, there were a lot of details that were added into the remastered. Like, for example, um, I remember Bernard reading a letter and it was all just scribbles. And they actually added the words into the letter when it became HD, uh, you know, remastered. So I, I appreciated all that detail and also the, you know, the making it more full screen. Um, yeah, the remastered version was, is very well done. And I think, I guess the other thing that was very old was the interaction, the, the, the scum engines uh, interaction with verbs. Right, like move to use and all that, right? Um, so they took that out and then they turned it, they made the whole entire level full screen. Um, of, of course, you can also opt to have that uh, the old UI in as well. But I thought that was really really nice as well. So it felt like um, because I I love Broken Age as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I do recall Broken Sword was also kind of full screen, wasn't it? You remember? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to, no, I can't even remember for the life of me. Uh, nah. <laughs> but I think Toonstruck was also full screen. I think it was, there was, uh, hmm. you, only when you click the item, then the, the ah. votes appear or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I thought the other tactical this time around, yeah, it was very nice because you can actually, it, now you're really watching a Saturday morning cartoon, <laughs> right? Everything is just full screen. Yeah. And, and I think the animation, they didn't change much. They just, um, high res it a bit so i feel that it still goes very well uh, when hoagie goes on idle he will burp you know so it's still very charming by itself but yeah i like the fact that uh, they took the extra mile to do the remaster and i think one more thing that they worked on because i was i was playing it with the developers commentary as well mm. um oh yeah and also watch the making of the the making of the game they i think the music for the game and the voices, they were too uh, compressed if they just take the file size as it is. So they actually dug up their old uh, tapes, mm. right? And of course, the tapes are not labeled well. For example, although it's labeled Bernard, but there, were, there, there are three voices inside the same tape. So they actually went through the voices one by one. <laughs> and then, <laughs> so they took the uncompressed version of the tape and then they put that all together again. Oh my God, I'm like... Just listening to that alone, I'm like, oh my god, I, I stopped being a game developer. If I have to do this, <laughs> but yeah, the the amount of effort that they took to remaster the game, it's already a very charming game, and yet they pushed it further. So yeah, really, uh, heads off to Double Fine Productions. Yeah, it's um, really, really. Yeah, I was just gonna say, um, 
what modern point-and-click games like uh, since the botanical sort of stood out for you as sort of yeah these are great games for genre as well like what, what stood out for you you, you, you mentioned mo- obviously broken age as well yeah broken age yeah broken age was yeah because uh broken age i feel that uh, the charm of the game is actually the the twist mm-hmm. i'm not gonna mention it <laughs> but yeah the twist kind of changes the whole entire perspective of uh how the game is Puzzles, I'm, unfortunately, I still prefer the old games, puzzles. Um, so like they have the tactical, for example. But Broken Age was really a good, um, I guess, challenge for Double Fine Productions as well to make a new point-and-click game. Um, if you're talking about modern point-and-click games, I think that's very difficult. Um, I would say that the games I'm very interested in now that is close to a point-and-click game are games like Phoenix Wright or Danganronpa where the point-and-click game is actually more simplified to just presenting evidence to the court. You know, uh, I used to watch a lot of those uh, drama courtroom, uh, courtroom drama series. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like stuff like, um, not necessarily courtroom drama, but like uh, something like Judge Judy or something. Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. Yes, yes. Uh, I forgot uh, Law and Order, of course, and a few others. Yeah, but, any, but you know, the... Oh. Yeah, so to change that into a point-and-click kind of genre was quite interesting, so... And Danga Rompa put it even further by putting in a battle royale murder mystery <laughs> turning into a courtroom <laughs> game. So I really like that. So, so yeah, if you're talking about modern point and click adventure, I would say Phoenix Wright and Danga Rompa. Yeah, it's, I it's, really, really it, love those games. It's it's interesting you mentioned Danga Rompa because then there's another Japanese sort of point and click game that sort of comes. That well, I don't know if I would call it point and click. It seems more like of a visual uh, novel than anything. But like, what about um? Zero escape games. Oh yeah, right. Like nine nine nine, for example. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. E- I still prefer <laughs> Danga Rompa <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but I think that nineteen nine 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 gave me a very bad impression because mm. I, I mean I love the idea of the game because it's a bit like a what do you call that like a escape room, right? Mm. It's like an escape room but turned into a proper story and with multiple rooms, and mm. um, and every part that you take might be different, right? So you go through different rooms in different cycles of the game. Uh, but the problem is I have to solve all the puzzles again, which was so ridiculous, <laughs> right? It's like um, after I die on the first round, then I go to the second round and I have to solve all the puzzles again in the same room. So I thought that was really ridiculous. Uh, I was playing the 999 on the 999 on the Nintendo DS mm. at the time and it was really, mm. <laughs> it turned me off a bit. So compared to that, compare that with Dun- uh, Phoenix, right? And after that, Danganronpa, I was more um, attracted to those games. Um, what about Western sort of point and click games? The, the the obvious sort of assumption, especially when you're tied into sort of um, LucasArts as well, is Telltale, like stuff like Back to the Future, as well as yeah. you know something like The Walking Dead, Batman, Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, what about those? I mean, yeah, I I did play Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. I think out of all the Telltale games, I of course I'm being biased here because I love the movie. <laughs> so, uh, Back to the Future was nice. It's um, I have to say though that, yeah, I still prefer uh, Phoenix Wright uh, because although you're playing a Saturday morning cartoon, it felt a bit more difficult when it comes to the cause and effect of the cause and effect relationship of the puzzles in the game. So a few of them are very smart, but I felt that the modern uh, point and click adventures sometimes they just ask you what to do. And sometimes the relationship between the puzzle and the actual motivation of the character in the game, sometimes it doesn't match very well, in my opinion. Okay, but yeah, because I'm very spoiled by the LucasArts 
days of you know, Dead Tentacle and Full Throttle and all that. The puzzles in those games and Grim Fandango as well. Let's not forget Grim Fandango, man. Mm. So Grim, the puzzles in that in those games were really really good. So it kind of spoiled me, mm. you know. So I was expecting that kind of standard <laughs> you know, when I play this kind of point and click. So Phoenix Wright, I do not expect that kind of standard because it's a very different um, structure. Right, you just have to read the what you call it the testimony, and you just have to present the correct evidence to the right testimony. Right, so it's a much more straightforward cause and effect compared to point click games. Point click games, there has this we have this global space with many things interacting with each other. So if the if the chart, if the relationship chart is not done correctly, then it will convince many people. And when I play these games, even back to the future, as much as I really love the setting and the puzzles, sometimes the puzzles are can be quite difficult. Like uh, I might be getting more stupid by the year. I don't know. <laughs> I might be a more brilliant child when I was, uh, you know, 16 years old. But <laughs> but I think yeah, some of the puzzles in those games are very. Difficult. What, what do you think of Telltale games? Yeah, I would like to know your. Um, I think like the only real one that I had a massive vested interest with uh, was The Walking Dead. Um, at least the first season anyway I loved the first season right. of The Walking Dead but it was yeah. just that first season mm-hmm. oh no I tell a lie um, it wasn't just the, uh, the first season of The Walking Dead <laughs> Tales from the Borderlands as well was fantastic oh, right. like it's fantastic okay like, okay I should like, play like, that game then like here's the thing I'm not a, not too into Borderlands like I've played a good chunk of Borderlands 1 and 2 mm. Yep. And like they're they're okay games they're fine I guess but Tales from the Borderlands is just absolutely phenomenal. It makes you sort of somewhat relate the the characters in these games like what Troy Baker mm. and Nora Bailey did um, with their characters it, it, and it was just phenomenal writing in that game as well. Um, like some really mm. seminal moments as well. Um, like yeah, it's like genuinely fantastic, especially for someone who is not as tune in to the Borderlands franchise um, mm, mm, as I mm. am. It's it's mm. utterly phenomenal. But I wouldn't even necessarily say that or The Walking Dead would be my favorite point and click. Um, if the one I would cite, mm. uh, and this is one of my top 10 games, although I don't know necessarily if you, if you would call point and click, although there are point and click elements to it as much as it is probably an adventure game, but it also sort mm. of uses time as a concept as well. Uh, damn, I, 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 let, let me guess, let me guess. Um, uh, is that is the is the one that you control the girl in the school? Uh, oh my god, the one that you can reverse time and uh, uh, just a bit, right? Oh my god, it's not coming to my head. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> oh my god, I love that game as well. My goodness, I can't, I can't believe I cannot remember the name. Okay, I give up. What's the name? Life is strange. Life is strange. Yes, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, yes. Oh yeah, come to think of it, it comes to time mechanics. Yeah, life is strange is really well done as well. Um, it's like if you open the cabinet, although you're not really affecting the, it much, but it's proof that you have tampered with the scene, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were actually really, really genius. And oh my god, episode two. Uh. Man, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, the day someone comes on to talk about Life is Strange on the show, it's going to be a Five-hour podcast. One-hour <laughs> for each episode. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was actually about to mention that game as well. Life is Strange. Um, yeah, I would... I think I put, put it in a point-and-click adventure. It's just that it's more analogous, I guess, mm. in a way. Mm, so it does border to adventure, like 3D adventure, right? Um, 
but yeah, life is strange. It's also a very nice package, isn't it? Like with the music and the whole emotional roller coaster, um, and everything felt so real, as well. I actually spoke with the developers because you know they also under Square Enix, right? So we met at uh, E3 as well, and I spoke with them as yeah, the way they presented the game as well was so it felt so human. It, it was so humble as well. Yeah, so it's yeah, I really enjoyed myself playing Life is Strange. Um, yeah. It, I was very, very emotionally invested in the game. Maybe too much. <laughs> so, so was I, to be fair. So I don't think you're the only one who wasn't. <laughs> yeah, that second episode really got me, man. Seriously, I mean, uh, I'm like, oh, that the the most one of the most um, difficult moments of gaming, in my opinion. <laughs> I agree. I absolutely yeah. agree. Like that. Yeah. Um, it's funny that you mentioned those sort of um, escape rooms as well in terms mm-hmm. of sort of modern point and click. Um, yeah. Have you played by any chance uh, TikTok A Tale for Two? TikTok A Tale for Two? No, yes. no I have not. I've not it's, even heard of it. It's it's a very point and click driven uh, game that is sort of escape room based. In fact, we did an, um, an episode of one of the other podcasts on Play Diaries um, Press Play with the developers mm-hmm. on it, uh, Other Tales Interactive. Um and mm. how uh, sort of the point and click uh, escape room sort of motif sort of inspired the game. It's it's mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. on it's on Switch and iPad and PC. So uh, well, iOS. Yes. Let me write that on my phone. Sorry, hold on. <laughs> TikTok. Uh, what? Sorry, TikTok. TikTok. A tale for two. T i c k t o c k. Right. Uh, T i c k t o c k. Yeah, not not the social media. Yes. <laughs> I get that confused sometimes. To be fair. <laughs> This episode, okay, okay, I will definitely play this. This episode of My Favorite Game has been brought to you by TikTok, <laughs> A Tale for Two, and TikTok. When 15 <laughs> seconds isn't enough, you do 60 seconds to whatever. <laughs> oh, no, I can't. This is next. There's a lot of money coming in then. <laughs> this is next response just about that idea. <laughs> okay, okay I'll, I'll look into it. Yeah, I, I'm sorry to say I've never heard of this game at all. Wow, this is so. Oh, either I'm I lived in a cave for so long, or it's just underrated. <laughs> uh, yeah, T- Tanya, Mayor, you or you owe me, you owe me a mention here. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, uh, there, there was another RAM, isn't it? Um, I still have yet to play it. I heard the music in there is really good. It's called uh, Paradise Killer. Oh, I've heard very good things about that. Very, yeah, very, yeah, good yeah. Things. Mm-hmm. I was planning to, yeah, I was planning to play it sometime next week or something. Yeah, it's, it seems like very Phoenix Wright-ish as well, yeah. but with all the JoJo poses, <laughs> all the I, I am awesome kind of poses, right? Yeah, so, <laughs> so looking forward uh, to that. Well. All right, so um, going back into um, David Tentacle then. Um, yeah. What do you like about the about the game that we've not touched upon yet? Mm, wow, so many. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess the other thing that I liked, but this is more like me being a Malaysian, mm. is that I learned a lot of American references through the other tentacle as well. Like, um, I don't know whether it's really an American thing, but you know, there's a puzzle where uh, it's a very weird cause and effect, but it was played to, it was played very well in the game, which is. You have to wash the car first, then only rain will come. <laughs> right? So it's like one of those, like, if you wash your car, it will definitely rain, it will dirty your car again, that kind of joke, right? 
So it doesn't, at the time, it didn't really click with me because uh, in Malaysia, it rains every day, almost. Same here. <laughs> oh yeah, London, of course. <laughs> UK, right? Yeah, so, yeah, so um, you know, learning all these American cultural references in the game was also quite interesting. And it is, I, I like how the game is just really very American, right? Like, for example, uh, Hoagie going through the past, you have to understand that George Washington lied about a cherry tree and all this. Uh, and I was lucky enough to watch enough cartoons to understand that. But I'm very sure some people do not see the relationship. Like, for example, uh, my Japanese wife, uh, we, we actually both played Dear the Tentacle together. And she totally didn't get the reference of uh, having George Washington to chop the cherry tree. So that uh, culture differences, I think, what makes it interesting. So I like it when games uh, do not shy away from putting in their own identity or culture, right? Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of uh, American cartoons that do that as well. Like, for example, Ed, Ed and Eddie, for example, is so American about, right? Mm. Um, and... You know, and all these games, Full Throttle and all this, also, it feels so American. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like Full yeah, Throttle yeah. especially feels very American to me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Going through the, you know, the route, I forgot what it's called already, that long highway. Was it Route 66, something like that? But, mm. yeah, you know, uh, it's just... Uh, and as a Malaysian, I feel some sort of culture, not to say culture shock, but you can really feel the differences between their game design or their or the way they tell the story compared to how we tell our stories, right? So I really appreciated that difference. Uh, yeah, I really love the fact that they're just not shy to put in whatever they feel like putting in, yeah. Hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, what didn't you like about Day of the Tentacle? Ho ho! Ho ho ho! <laughs> Um, none. No, just kidding. Okay, <laughs> if I say that, I I will fail as a game developer. Um, there are some puzzles which were quite, um, I guess, hard to understand at first, right? Like for example, I think. Uh, well, this is also my fault because you know I maybe I didn't have a big brain at the time. <laughs> but like for example, when you have Benjamin Franklin flying the kite, right? I was expecting to put something metallic in the kite so that um, he will discover electricity or something like that, right? But the thing is that you had to put in a battery, which I did not have yet. So there were some parts of the, there were some parts of the game where you kind of jumped the gun a bit and you thought that the solution was this and you struggle a lot. Um, so for example, the kite for Benjamin Franklin, uh, that was a bit quite difficult to handle in terms of uh, the UI because you have to go into this little cutscene every single time you experiment with a kite. So every trial and error comes with that cutscene. <laughs> so it can be very, very stressful uh, sometimes. And also there are times when you kind of use the verb on certain items, but because you click on the wrong pixel, uh, it, you interact with the wrong thing and you thought that's the only thing in that area, mm. right? Like for example, I remember there was a mailbox and there was a flag. So the mailbox and the flag, right? Uh, by the way, that, I think that's a very, very Western thing. We don't have that kind of thing in, <laughs> in Malaysia. But uh, so I was trying to click the mailbox, but I accidentally clicked the flag instead. So what happened was Hoagie put up the flag and there was a very, very fast delivery man whooshing across the screen. 
And the thing is, I didn't even, uh, I didn't click it again because I thought that was the effect. So I thought I had to send stuff. Little did I know that you can actually interact with the mailbox and you can open the mailbox and there's a letter inside, right? So I thought that whole entire area was the mailbox itself. So I totally missed that, you know? So yeah, the, uh, sometimes the pixel hunting existed still in The Other Tentacle, but it's very minor compared to the other games though. Mm -mm. And the other thing is, I guess there was very little tutorial, which I think is also a good thing in the 90s. Uh, but I, I didn't know that you can actually drag uh, inventory to the chronogen, uh, to the profile picture. If, let's say, for example, if you're, if you're controlling Burnett, then you can actually drag something to Laverne's profile that you will send the item automatically to Laverne. I thought that you had to travel all the way to the chronogen, the toilet, which is another amazing idea, by the way. This is, I, that was brilliant. Where you have to flush down the inventory to the other time line, right? I thought, so I had to, so for the longest time, I traveled all the way to the toilet to flush things down uh, to the other timeline, you know, where when I didn't know that you can actually just drag the item to the face, uh, mm. you were able to just pass it automatically. So I did too much walking, basically. <laughs> too much and more than necessary, yeah. Mm. Um, what would you change from a sort of design perspective then? Like, is there anything within the game you change? Oh my goodness. <laughs> wow, that's a difficult one. Um, hmm, nothing. That's why it's my favorite game, isn't it? True. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's fair. <laughs> but, uh, well, a little tutorial about that, about reducing the stress would be nice, of mm. course. Um, I would love to see more for sure, like more uh, time-traveling puzzles as well, right? Yeah, yeah, because uh, time-traveling puzzles, there are a few, but it's still, uh, you know, if I were to design it, I would definitely put a whole lot more. But again, you might affect the Mary Hari, mm. the, yeah, again, the, the tipsy turvy, right? Yeah, so that's why I don't really dare to say that I would like to do that entirely. But yeah, I mean, adding, a, adding more puzzles would be great. Well, in other words, I just want more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I love it so much. Yeah. Um, the fun, the fun, the funny thing that was sort of the uh, through line that I've sort of sourced through over the past nearly hour, we've talked about, like, you know, the uh, tentacle is the sort of cartoony nature, the sort of how it doesn't take itself so serious style of its story, um, yep. and all that. There, the fun, the, the, I, is there a lot of influence in that? from Day of the Tentacle within No Straight Roads because it feels like from what I played of No Straight Roads there's definitely that's there <clears throat> yeah No Straight I mean <laughs> Daim and I my co-founder the creative director Daim and I we're, we're big fans of Tim Schafer games mm. <laughs> okay and <laughs> and we're also big uh, big fans of the Dreamcast era yeah and the PS2 era as well where we have like Sly Cooper Right. Uh, I remember Peter Chan was also, he also worked on Sly Cooper. Um, not as the main artist though, but yeah, you can actually see the cartoonic uh, nature of Sly Cooper, right? Um, and then uh, Jet Set Radio, which was, I mean, you, I mean it's, it's, the plot is ridiculous. <laughs> Space Channel 5 is ridiculous, right? So those were the days where everything was just ridiculous. Like Guitar Man mm. was the other one I really love as well. Yeah, so... 
um, the whole entire feeling of zeniness, uh, not sticking to a certain, how to say, not not sticking to a certain uh, popular art genre, mm. right? Because typically, uh, indie developer, you know, like in Malaysia, sometimes we would come up with something very anime-like, mm. right? Uh, a lot of the art students that graduated from colleges here, they do a lot of anime-like characters. You know, and we thought, no, we want to do something stupid and zany and crazy. Yeah. So um, we made sure that uh, I think Daim also, when he was in charge of the plot uh, together with ID and other cousin of ours, um, they also made sure that the story had real motivations, just like the identical, but having a zany, strange icing on top, right? So, uh, yeah, Dead or Tentacle, definitely a huge influence in our game. Top three LucasArts games, what would they be? Obviously, Dead or Tentacle top, but how else yep. would you follow two and three? <laughs> Let me think. Uh... Oh, God. Hold on, just give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> not easy man you know to be honest johnny when you invited me for this uh favorite games podcast right i also had a tough time to be honest <laughs> the article is definitely a favorite but it's just that you know i have a lot of favorites as well so it's like yeah it was a tough decision to make uh, but for lucas arts oh gosh i guess number two is tie fighter mm. number three would be full throttle that that, that 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 is an acceptable list that is acceptable. <laughs> I will accept that. That is a very what 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 would you find unacceptable then? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm just sorry. sorry. Honorable mentions, go for it. One of the toughest uh, answers, uh, one of the toughest questions in uh, all my in- media interviews is, what is your favorite game? <laughs> uh, That's why requires... I asked it about an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I will just refer them to your this podcast then. <laughs> for the answer. <laughs> yeah, making my life easier. Thank you. Um, I usually separate them to genres. Mm. And I mentioned my favorite games. So um, starting from, obviously, I was I worked in Square Enix. So naturally, naturally, I love my JRPGs. Mm. Uh, my favorite being Final Fantasy VII, and also Skies of Arcadia. So Final Fantasy VII, obviously, um, it was my first love when it comes to RPGs, uh, because um, my father didn't uh, get me a console at all. So PlayStation 1 was the first, the very first console I bought with my own money. And the reason why I played that, the reason why I bought that console was because uh, in the mall, you can actually rent a PlayStation for around um, two pounds an hour. Uh, and you can play whatever game that you want in the whole shop. Mm. One of, uh, the game that I really enjoyed a lot was Parappa the Rapper. <laughs> but I got through that very quickly. 
and uh, the shopkeeper recommended me Final Fantasy VII. So I thought I popped that in. And I really love the world a lot to the point that I bought the PlayStation 1 just for that game. <laughs> so, so yeah. And I was so... And that was my first RPG, by the way. Mm. I Surprisingly enough, I didn't play a lot of RPGs on the PC, like, you know, like Ultima and all that. Mm. I don't know why. Um, and uh, I was so gullible. I was so naive. Um, I Because, you know, it came with three discs, right? Mm. If, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, the original PlayStation... So I thought the game was only in the first disc and the other two were like soundtrack CDs or something like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when I completed Midgar, the first arc, I thought that was a game. That's it. Because <laughs> I had no experience with RPGs, you know. So I thought that was a game. That's it. So that I... was it. If you play the remake. <laughs> the remake, yeah. <laughs> so the remake was actually my first impression of Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> uh, and then when I found out that there was an overworld, I'm like, what the heck is this? <laughs> Oh, I just finished like 10% of the game. <laughs> so that was quite interesting uh, experience. Uh, Skies of Arcadia was really, for me, the what made the Dreamcast the golden era for me because um, Skies of Arcadia was such a charming RPG. Final Fantasy VII, you know, it's charming. Uh, I really love the game and the world, but, you know, you, you can get depressed <laughs> in the game. Yeah. Yeah, and with all the lingo and all sort of what Genova and all this stuff, right? So, Skies of Arcadia was that light-hearted RPG that I've always wanted, yeah, to play. And it was so charming because it was, um, it had, it was designed for many types of gamers, right? So, I mean, you can customize your own island as well. Um, there are ship battles, you know. It's like, it's like obviously, it's like One Piece turned into a game. <laughs> Yeah, because one piece that, that romant it romantizes the concept of being a pirate, right? Yeah. Although being a pirate is a scum, <laughs> it's like being a scum, but you know, we have Monkey Island, we have Skies of Arcadia, so yeah, being pirate is great. And you were pirating games as well, so it's sort of I brought it back. It's all coming back to full circle. <laughs> <laughs> Pirates oh. <laughs> oh no! So for people who pirated our game, no heroes, I understand. <laughs> but please buy original. Okay, anyway, <laughs> um, in terms of rhythm games, uh, I have two types. One is the hardcore, because I've been playing rhythm games for twenty plus years, for twenty years already. For twenty years already, I played since Beatmania One, and I've played Dance of the Revolution all the way till the rhythm games of today. Um, my favorite uh, casual rhythm game is Rhythm Heaven, mm. uh, followed by Space Channel 5. Yep. Mm. Um, well, Space Channel 5, Guitar Man, it's very easy why, it's very easy to see why I love those games. And, and also Rhythm Heaven, right? It just felt, um, there are two reasons why I love all these kind of rhythm games, because number one, again, it's, uh, it's humorous. Uh, it, it knows how to laugh at itself. It knows how to laugh with its users. Uh, number two, you can almost imagine the developers showing their smuggy face when the rhythm gets more difficult, mm. right? Like for example, in Rhythm Heaven, there's a time where you're playing, you're you're trying to push a pipe through a, a bolt mm. or something like that, and they suddenly blind the whole entire screen and just show that one small window, 
right? And you can imagine like the game is in the lane. <laughs> what you gonna do about it now, huh? <laughs> you know. So that smuggy, that smug look of a game designer is something that I really look forward to sometimes when I play games. And Space Channel Five also is the same. They they change. They sometimes change the beat a bit. Uh, they make the beat more. Uh, they make they make the beat shorter, right? They make the rhythm shorter and all this. Yeah. So it's really, uh, I like that kind of. Um, I don't know what it's called in the Western world, but it's just a smuggy, smug face. Yeah. Game design. <laughs> a, a very punctual, smug game design. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In Japanese, it's called doya gao. So doya gao means like hmm, smug face. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh yeah. Apart from that, okay, platforming games. Um, yeah, Sly Cooper. Uh, you know, I love my Saturday morning cartoons, right? So, <laughs> Sly Cooper is my favorite. Is my favorite platforming game. Um, followed by Clonoa. Ah. Yes. Someone, please make a sequel, please, <laughs> of both games. <laughs> May I introduce you to Dan Pierce of Ten uh, Second Ninja Game Design Dan on Twitter? He has appeared on my favorite game before, and he talked of Clonoa mm-hmm. Two as his favorite game. And every now and then, he will tweet mm-hmm. of his want and need to make Clonoa Three. I feel like <laughs> I should introduce you to as a result of that. <laughs> um. Here's a little, little interesting tidbit, um, which is also unfortunate news for Dan. Is uh, so we have friends in Bandar Namco. Mm. Uh, so we actually uh, went to Japan before, and we presented the game to the Bandar Namco CEO uh, and also the game designer as well. And then when I asked about a, sequ- a potential sequel to Clonoa, they just laughed. And <laughs> uh, here's the exit, by the way. <laughs> So yeah. <laughs> oh, Perda. He's gonna be heartbroken when he hears this. <laughs> But that was two years ago. They might have changed their minds. So. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hope springs. <laughs> But yeah, when I first, when I heard that for the first time, I'm like, oh, that was so sad to hear. <laughs> Can hear my heartbreak, man. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah, so platformers, yeah, Clonoa game design is fantastic. Sly Cooper, actually, one of the levels in Sly Cooper uh, inspired the design of uh, No Straight Roads as well. Because mm. um, No Straight Roads is a is a action game that is music centric, so the enemies actually follow the music, but you don't have to follow the music to the T, right? Mm. Um, so the because I feel that music is underutilized in video games, so you know there are so many other. Uh, rules of music that can be applied in game design. So mostly it's just beats and rhythm, hmm. but there's also structure and all that that's not played well in video games yet. So there was one level in um, Sly Cooper where uh, you go into this. Uh, there was this voodoo crocodile lady. I forgot what's her name. Uh, she's the third boss, I think, of Sly Cooper, the first one, hmm. and the thievish raccoonus. And there was a part where the teeth of the cave. So the teeth of the cave looks like a crocodile, looks like cro- crocodile teeth, hmm. and or alligator teeth, and it actually falls down based on the beat, but you don't have to jump exactly based on the beat. Hmm. So I actually showed that video to my team uh, when we started New Straight Roads uh, pre-production. Hmm. Hmm. But anyway, it's like Cooper. Yeah, the characters are zany as well, are crazy, uh, and yet it's understandable why Sly Cooper wants his book back. You know, it's. A, So again, every I just love it when 
the setting is weird, but the motivations are real. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I, I want to go back to your sort of um, rhythm picks, um, especially the, or la- the lack there of mention of sort of harmonics games. Um, yeah. I mentioned to you before about how I sort of saw No Straight Roads when we first chatted back at Res last year. Yeah. What, um, the sort of what I saw from No Straight Roads sort of inspired by what harmonics are made, not necessarily with Guitar Hero or Rock Band as, as mm. greatly influential as those games are, especially in terms of social gaming, but more games like Frequency and Amplitude. I'm sort mm. of uh, wondering how those games would sort of stack up to you as well. Um, okay, those are, well, what we call rhythm games, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But they're the sense of using, uh, how, how would I say this? How they synced the visual mm. with the music was really well done because I think the game designers were mostly musicians, mm. if I'm not mistaken, right? That's what makes harmonics really great. Yeah, so, yeah, I think that they know the soul of the of music very well. And that is something, admittedly, for No Straight Roads, um, we're still learning. It's, a, it's still a learning process, right? So, I obviously, uh, metronomic is, we the team consists of mostly fresh graduates mm. or people who are new to the game industry. So, metronomic is actually, was actually formed not only to make memorable games, but also to give opportunities to newcomers, right? So, harmonics for me is like the team to aim for when it comes to rhythm sense or music sense uh, when it comes to visuals, you know. So, for example, our animators really need to understand music properly. Our VFX artists also need to understand rhythm properly. You know? So, uh, we are not, admittedly, we are not at the harmonics level yet. So, we are still learning and we hopefully in our future games also will. But yeah, harmonics is the, for, for us, it's like the benchmark when it comes to representing uh, rhythm with visuals. Mm. I think on that note, then, like, um, like before we sort of start to wrap this up, I think it, hmm. uh, it's, it's worth asking, like, um, like how much of that influence that sort of, like, you know, I mean, like you sort of mentioned it there, but like, how much of that harmonic sort of rhythm influence has well will inspire that next metronomic game? I think it's only it's not only harmonics. Um, I, I should also mention uh, the Mizuguchi sounds. Yeah, 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 yes, yeah, yes. like yes. Res, uh, Tetris Res, Effect. Tetris Effect, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, 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 fucking yeah. So, I fucking adore Res Infinite. Like, <laughs> yeah, me sorry, too, me sorry. too. I, I digress, I digress. Go on, go on, sorry. <laughs> yeah, did you play Res Infinite? I did. PSVR, yeah. it was a religious experience. Close yeah. to a religious experience, especially in Area X. So fucking good. Mm, Area X is so so good, wasn't it? And you know, a game that deserves a remaster or just release it again was Child of Eden, man. <laughs> I Child would not Eden. complain. I would not complain. <laughs> that was uh, the... oddly one of the very few games using a Connect that felt worthwhile. And I think that's something that's worth uh, as well. Mizuguchi just knows how to utilize. Uh, bespoke technologies to you know yeah. certain games like Connect with Child of Eden, like PSVR with Res Infinite and Tetris Effect. Oh, admittedly, I've still yet to use yep. PSVR with Tetris Effect. He knows how to mm. utilize that technology. Anyway, I digress. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go on. <laughs> no, no, no problem, no problem. I mean, I I can talk about Mizuguchi games all day as well. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> I can talk about Team Schafer. I can talk about Mizuguchi Sun. <laughs> yes. So yeah. Um, I think what Mizuguchi-san does very well is the you know the concept of synesthesia, right? Mm. 
So Harbonics, uh, I guess because they make rhythm games, so they have a bit of a limitation, which is that the bar coming falling down has to be easily understandable, right? Mm. Whereas Mizuguchi Sang uh, kind of uh, detached the rhythm aspect from the game design and decided to make it much more like more immersive rather than um, accurate mm. per se, right? Uh, and the way he represented, or should I say, the way he directed the team to represent the music with elements of human motivation. Like, for example, Child of Eden, one of my favorite levels was actually the uh, Passion. Mm. I think it's called Passion Level 4, right? Where there was a purple and red ball fighting with each other. And then you can actually see the techno- uh, the evolution of technology through the whole other level, right? Start, uh, starting with uh, cars, trains, and then... Uh, at the end, they actually launch a rocket or something like that. So they show like videos of people trying to fly and all that, you know. So I thought, wow, that's that's really a whole new level of how to represent rhythm. <laughs> so um, it felt like as if he was making, a, how do you say, like a VJ, uh, video jockey, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but with meaning, yeah. with a whole lot of meaning and interaction. Right, uh, Luminous was also the same, and Tetris. In fact, my God, that game made me fall in love with Tetris again, <laughs> but for different reasons. <laughs> so yeah, um, for the future of metronomic, definitely. Again, as I mentioned, we're we're putting not only harmonics, of course, but also Mizuguchi Sans games as the benchmark when it comes to visual representation of uh, music. Hmm. However, of course, we want to go. A different step a bit which is we don't only take rhythm and beats as the only element to play with when it comes to uh, making our game design mm. so Mizuguchi Sang detaches it right so he detached the game design with the rhythm so it's more about immersion and all that uh, harmonics goes the, the entire way around right which is mm. uh, really attaching it to the to a rhythm game correct mm. so we are trying to aim for the middle ground rather which is Music still plays a role in the game design, uh, but you do not have to become a rhythm gamer to enjoy the game. Mm. So what we are learning from the both of them is how to represent uh, music with visuals. And we add one more game design layer to it. And yeah, hopefully, although admittedly, yeah, we're, you know, we're still on the way there, but hopefully with the future games, um, yeah, I get to we get to be in the same group as harmonics and also Mizubiji Sang. <laughs> it's just uh, worth noting uh, something's just coming to my head. Have you actually played um, Fuser yet? No, I would love to. I would love to. It's um, so good. It's really, really good. Really? It's, it's, it's I mean, just, there's nothing more, um, oh, not perfect, but there's nothing more enjoyable than a perfect drop as you get a good, like, a ah, I know what you mean. It. I know what you mean because because the drop is also an important game element in those heroes as well. Mm. Because the drop is when the attack becomes more uh, furious, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So the so yeah, I'm looking forward to fuse because another reason why I'm looking forward to fuse. <laughs> this is just a very very personal uh, little joke of mine because I always like to act like I am a DJ. <laughs> so I will. <laughs> Although I have no idea on how to become a DJ, but you know I will take off my headphones and and you know uh, lift my hands <laughs> and then I will <laughs> I will 
one head for out of one ear and then <laughs> like acting like no I'm doing by chat don't but hopefully Fuser will uh, encourage me to to at least uh, teach me up <laughs> to DJ <laughs> or at least I can act the part rather than just you know music fake, coming out from my mouth <laughs> fake fake it until you make it <laughs> yeah fake it until you make it man Fuser <laughs> yeah um so um top three games ever how would you rank them obviously they had the tentacle at the top but like how would you sort of rank oh them? my god stop johnny stop <laughs> tough questions man tough questions you can't see this uh, for anyone listening but you can't see this i'm just sort of shuffling on my chair and sort of <laughs> you're <stuff>. evil <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. If that's the case, then I will say number two is. Um, can I put two games in one slot? Is that okay? <laughs> all right, all right. Well, let's hear. Let's hear the argument at least. Okay, F7 and Skies of Arcadia is number two. Okay, okay. okay I'll, 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 I will. I will accept that. Okay. Yep. And number three would be Rhythm Heaven. Okay. Okay. I. I yep. I, it's I okay. I four games though. Yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> I I I'll, I will allow this. I will. I'll, yeah. I'll allow this. Thank you. Or uh, I mean, you just roll a die, and if it's odd, then it's FF seven. If it's even, then it's Castle Arcadia. Then. I'm the game director of No Straight Roads, and this being our debut game uh, uh, from Malaysia. Uh, sorry, uh, we are Metronomic. We are for, we are based in Malaysia, and our team is comprised of mostly newcomers to the game industry. Um, and, but we poured a lot of love. The team has poured a lot of love into the game. Um, you can find some influences from uh, the other tentacle, the Zeniness and also the, the the very concept of you know um that the world is following the music like music which is games or harmonics right and the plot is also very zenny it's about uh you control an indie rock band trying to topple an edm empire and everything is very dynamic uh, it shows the the music you can uh use your ears to know the the power balance of the game. Uh, for example, if the enemy is winning, that is EDM centric. That if you're winning, that it becomes rock. You know. So yeah, we had a, we have a lot of uh, ideas in the game. So I hope that if you have not played it yet, uh, do experience the humor and the zeniness and also the wonderful music in the game. Um, and it's on out for Epic Game Store. Uh, also on the PS4, on the Switch, and the Xbox One as well. Hmm. No straight roads, everyone. Uh, what about the social media stuff and all that there? Oh, sorry. Oh, I'm very bad at marketing. <laughs> That's why I have Dave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, please follow us on uh, social media uh, at No Straight Roads for, um, on Twitter and also just type in No Straight Roads uh, on Facebook. And we also on Instagram as well, same, No Straight Roads. 
Um, you can also follow me, One Hazmir, on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, I do share some news on the game and also on Metronomic. Um, also, I've been starting my game stream recently. So I actually stream games while, analyze, while analyzing the game design and also introducing games made in Malaysia as well. So that's twitch.tv slash onehazmir, W-A-N-H-A-Z-M-E-R. Thanks for listening to My Favourite Game, a podcast by Play Diaries where people in the games industry come on to talk of their favourite game. If you want to listen to future episodes of My Favourite Game or press play before they go live publicly, please consider subscribing to our $2 tier on Patreon at patreon.com slash playdiaries. Next week, the season finale, Anissa Sanusi on Persona 5. Ooh, that's going to be interesting. Until next week, bye-bye.